Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, February 12th, day 129 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel down here with our military reporter Emmanuel Fabian and diplomatic correspondent Laser Behrman. Hello to you both. Hi, Laser. Hi, Amanda. Good morning. We will hear about the daring overnight operation that saw the rescue of two hostages from Gaza. We'll hear about ongoing hostage talks and a phone call between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and U.S. President Joe Biden that may point to the potential fraying of support for the ongoing war from the United States. All this and much, much more when we're back. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. In a complex overnight operation, Israeli special forces rescued two hostages from Hamas captivity in Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip, marking the first successful extraction of captives held by the terror group in months. The released hostages are Fernando Simon Marmon and Norbeto Louis Haar, who were abducted with Marmon's two sisters and niece and her dog from kibbutz near Yitzchak on October 7th. Manny, what do we know, first of all, about their condition before we dive into the rescue? Both uh, of the hostages uh, who were released are said to be in good condition. Uh, they are now being uh, treated and, and held under observation at uh, Sheba Hospital, where they also um, met up with their loved ones, some of whom, uh, like you mentioned, were actually uh, previously held hostage in Gaza and were released uh, in November. But they are both in, in, good, in good health. The operation was a joint operation by the police's elite Yamam counterterrorism unit and the Shin Bet security agency. What can you tell us about the blow-by-blow? So at around 1 in the morning, uh, 1 a.m., very early this morning, the army began this operation. So the um, members of police's Yamam uh, unit, they uh, arrived at Rafah. And it's important to note that Israel has not uh, maneuvered on the ground yet in Rafah. It's only operated uh, up until Khan Yunus at its southernmost point in Gaza. So the officers uh, reached this building where the two hostages were being held. And at uh, 1.49 a.m., the Yamam officers breached into the second floor uh, of this apartment building and killing three terrorists who were guarding the, the hostages. And within a minute, the Israeli Air Force carried out um, large airstrikes in the area to cover for this extraction. Heavy, heavy airstrikes in, in the area around the building and several nearby buildings as well. Uh, IDF officers as well 
battled uh, several Hamas terrorists in the area of the extraction. Um, it, this was an operation that also involved the Navy Shayatet uh, 13 commander unit and the 7th Armored Brigade. And within an hour, the two hostages were uh, taken out of the building uh, into an armored vehicle and then brought to a safer area where they were taken on a helicopter and brought straight to the hospital. Um, and uh, no uh, Israeli soldiers were, were killed. There was one soldier who was slightly uh, wounded in the operation um, uh, and uh, otherwise a very successful uh, raid on the Palestinian side, Hamas has claimed that around a hundred Palestinians were killed in the uh, in the airstrikes in Rafah. We don't know the exact number, and if that is uh, correct, some reports reports have put the number slightly lower. Um, but there were, there were very heavy airstrikes that were carried out during the extraction. IDF spokesperson Daniel Hagari gave a press conference shortly after we learned about this uh, rescue operation. What did he say there? Uh, he said that the the operation was very complex and it had been something that the army had been pre preparing for for quite a while uh, and they had waited for the exact um, right moment to carry it out in a way that they would actually be able to, to conduct a, a successful operation. Uh, we know that the only other operation to rescue hostages that was successful was the rescue of Ori Megidish in late October. Uh, in December, there was another attempt, but uh, in that case, it, it failed. The hostage uh, was killed and even his body was not recovered. So the army has prepared for this for a while and, and carried it out in, in, a, in the right timing so that it would be successful. And uh, Hagari also thanked the sort of the sacrifice of the soldiers who have, uh, who have died and who have been injured in, in all the battles in Gaza in the last few months who have allowed the army to reach this moment where it can carry out a successful operation. We know that two soldiers were killed yesterday in Khan Yunus uh, from the Maglan commander unit, unrelated to the uh, to this rescue operation, but uh, just in general amid the fighting. Another important thing we should note, note is that the uh, the operation was managed from the Shin Bet's uh, war room, and there many officials were gathered. So the head of the army, police, uh, head of the Shin Bet, of course, uh, the head of the army's intelligence, head of army's operations were there. And later on, Defense Minister Gallant and Prime Minister Netanyahu also joined uh, to observe the, from, basically from very close up, uh, the overnight uh, rescue operation. I would suspect that the freed hostages haven't yet been questioned about their experiences, but as you mentioned, their condition is good. And is the assessment currently that they were kept in houses and not in tunnels? I think that's why they may be in uh, better uh, health than than other hostages might be, is the fact that they were at least recently held hostage in a, in a building. We don't know if uh, they were in a, a tunnel beforehand. That will be information that will be likely revealed over the coming days when when uh, these two hostages are are able to talk and um, and share their experiences. But they were indeed held in a home um, in the Shabura area of Rafah, um, and uh, for, at least for now, we know that they are in in good health and in good spirits. And we'll find out later exactly what they went through in the past 129 days uh, of Hamas captivity. Many, thank you so much for all of your updates. Thank you. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. 
You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their, like, blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wrote on X following the operation, quote, I salute our brave warriors for the bold action that led to their liberation. Only the continuation of military pressure until complete victory will result in the release of all our hostages. Laser, do you think that this signals less willingness on the part of Israel to negotiate the rest of the hostages release? I understand there's meant to be some kind of high-level meetup in Cairo tomorrow about the hostage negotiations. What do you think? It's a good question. So as you said, in Cairo, we're basically going to have a repeat of what happened in Paris. If you remember, there was that meeting between the Shin Bet chief, Mossad chief, uh, CIA chief, Bill Burns, Qatar's uh, prime minister, and uh, Egypt's intelligence chief. And that was where they drew up that initial framework that Hamas basically uh, rejected, came back with its own demands, which Israel said uh, were uh, delusional. Over the top, even. Over the top, that was that was Biden's term, but uh, in, in Israel, they called it delusional. Uh, so th- tomorrow, we're going to have a another attempt to come up with another framework. Throughout, there's been this tension that between the two main war aims. One is defeating Hamas, toppling their military and uh, and, and civil uh, ruling capabilities, and the other one is bringing all the hostages home. The protests that you'll see for the, from the hostage families and others say that the priority needs to be bringing the hostages home, and the only way to do so is in a deal, painful as that may be. But Netanyahu and other war leaders have been consistent in their insistence that only military pressure will bring the hostages home. Um, that was certainly true for the first uh, round of hostage hostages that were released in that eight-day ceasefire, um, when it was indeed the Hamas desire to give themselves some breathing room in the face of, of IDF operations that led to their willingness to to um, to release hostages on relatively favorable terms for Israel. But now we've seen that their position has only hardened. Uh, I think there's been a, an expectation throughout, which is not really reasonable, that you'd see a lot of uh, Entebbe-style operations and extraction of hostages, that really doesn't happen very much. Most hostage rescue operations don't succeed. As Manny said, we've only had two that succeed. So we shouldn't expect a large number of hostages to be released like this. So I think when people say, including um, those same hostage families, say it doesn't, I mean, this is wonderful and, and well done um, IDF, but if we really want to bring over 100 hostages home, there still has to be a deal. This does give Netanyahu a little bit more breathing room. It also gives him a little bit more of a uh, of evidence or a little bit of backing in his case that we need to go into Rafah. We see that 
uh, military pressure, military operation, this is a very targeted military operation in Rafah, bring positive results. But of course, hovering over this all is the potential and probably the need to see that major IDF operation in the last um, unconquered Palestinian st- city there on the border, Rafah. Okay, so let's turn now to the potential operation in Rafah. And as you noted in a very in-depth piece, there are any number of complex issues to take into consideration. It's been a decade since the IDF had a plan to conquer Gaza before our operation in Gaza right now. And last night, U.S. President Joe Biden told Netanyahu that Israel should not go ahead with a military operation in the densely populated Gaza border town without a, quote, credible plan to protect citizens. So obviously, there's also Egypt on the horizon, and Egypt warned Hamas that if it doesn't get its act together, it has about two weeks before Egypt expects Israel to go into Rafah. It's so complicated. Let's pick at this knot a little bit. Let's start with the U.S. Sure. Let's keep in mind, um, as I always say, we have that election coming up. President Biden's standing is not great in polls. And after that disastrous uh, report about his memory and that press conference afterward damaged his standing even more, he needs every vote that he can get. And progressives and Arab Americans are very, very unhappy with him for supporting what they call, quote unquote, a genocide, which it certainly is not. A lot of this rhetoric that we hear, which sounds out of touch with reality or even offensive to Israeli ears that we hear from Blinken, sometimes from Biden, first of all, must be seen as rhetoric uh, ahead of the campaign, trying to mollify through words some of these um, angry potential voters. So far, American policy has not changed, right? So from the start, they sold Israel weapons. Um, They have not called for a permanent ceasefire. They have brought troops to the region. So that has not changed. And this, these statements could be part of that. But um, it does seem like that the rhetoric has has ramped up and that there is real concern um, on the U.S. side about those civilians. Um, Now, for Egypt, there's no question that Egypt wants to see Hamas defeated. I mean, like all the other uh, pro-Western regimes in the region. They don't want another, first of all, Muslim Brotherhood, also Iranian-allied armed group right on their border. There's no question about that. But they have to, they cannot be, A, they don't want to have uh, Palestinians pushed into the Sinai and they don't want to see Hamas pushed into the Sinai. They they have to be shown as uh, concerned with the Palestinian issue and and can't be seen as complicit um, with the killing of Palestinian civilians. Um, So there is concern, but if Israel does this properly and is able to keep civilian casualties to a reasonable level, um, Israel should get out of this fine. Now, in my piece that you referenced, I said this would have been much, much easier if Israel had done this in the first few weeks of the war. Um, There was that delay for three weeks when we wasted valuable time. Um, Civilian casualties started rising, sympathy started waning. Um, because we did not have an operational plan for conquering the Gaza Strip. The last time we had that was in the days of uh, Sami Torjaman, who was the head of the Southern Command, Operation Protective Edge. But since then, his plan was canceled, and it was never, none of the, his successors ever created a plan that includes Herzi Halevi, who was the current IDF chief of staff, because they, they, it just wasn't seen as possible. Israel was so averse to ever taking control of the Gaza Strip again, they said, we're never going to topple Hamas. And that's why we took, it took weeks of wasted time. And even when the ground operation started, I still don't understand why Gaza City, it was taken in the first act. Excellent. But why wasn't Rafah taken at the same time? 
Um, before there was a lot of civilians there, before ca civilian casualties really started making a problem in, for us in the international stage. Um, I think that is a major blunder in this war. And now Rafah, even though Israel can still go in if it needs to, and it does need to, uh, is much more of a complex problem, as you said, with the U.S., uh, with Egypt, and with other allies. Let's talk a little bit more about Egypt. Now, as I understand it, Egypt is bolstering its force on the border right now. I think according to the agreement in the pullout in what, 2005, Egypt is meant to have something like 750 soldiers in that area. And now they've deployed more tank units, if I'm not mistaken. What does that signal to you? I forget exactly what year, but it was about a little more than a decade ago. Israel allowed a much larger um, Egyptian force into the border area, into the northern Sinai, to fight with smuggling and to fight terrorism. And the, every, every uh, introduction of new forces has to be done with Israel's um, agreement and consent, and this was given. Um, so th it, it can introduce dozens of tanks without Israel allowing it to, and Israel um, did allow it to. Um, there is, there, like I said, there's two concerns. There's the concerns of masses of civilians moving across the border, and there's the, the concern about Hamas uh, terrorists moving into the Sinai, where it has been b battling in Islamist, Islamic State, and other affiliated groups and insurgency, but it's gotten uh, decent control over that area. But there have been times when it has asked Israel to operate in Sinai as well from the air. So um, this is certainly a concern, even though the... Uh, diplomatic and political relationship looks a little rocky right now. Uh, security cooperation with Egypt, also with Jordan, between the militaries, continues to be strong. Um, and these things, even though they don't make the headlines, are certainly important to all sides. Um, and they need Israel as much as we need them in terms of cooperation over these issues. How credible do you see this threat of negating the Camp David Accords from Egypt? Nah, it's just hot air. Um, they've said it in the past. You know, these are regimes in the area that are always paranoid about their own survival. Maybe paranoid is not the right word because we've seen that they can be toppled. Um, what they want is security cooperation, especially with the United States. Um, and they're not about to start endangering that and endangering support in Congress and their ability to access um, advanced weaponry. Um, and, and cooperate in counterterrorism initiatives by tearing up a, a, a peace plan that was that has been a cornerstone of, of, of Egyptian policy. This plays well in the media, certainly to the domestic front, and it also puts a little bit of pressure on Israeli decision makers, but I don't think it's something that should be taken seriously at all. Okay, also in terms of the fight for the hearts and minds, a whole slew of interviews that Netanyahu gave to U.S. media were released yesterday. And in them, he tried to give Americans some kind of uh, ruler from which to see the October 7th massacre. And in one of the interviews, he said, that October 7th massacre was equivalent to 29 9-11s in one day and the equivalent of 50,000 Americans slaughtered, burned, maimed, raped, beheaded, and 10,000 Americans taken hostage, including mothers and children. But do you think that this kind of rhetoric will be successful in terms of winning back over the American public? Well, first of all, I don't think the American public has been lost, even though the progressives, um, a lot of Muslim and Arab American groups, and let's face it, a lot of anti-Semites in America, like any other place, um, have been vocal and have been the ones disrupting campuses and blocking streets. 
The majority of the American people supports Israel. There's no question about that. So let's be clear about that, even though it might not seem that way that uh, at times. I think it's important to continue to stress what happened on October 7th, since a lot of the rhetoric has now shifted, into, at least in the official uh, and in the media, um, from official statements and, and, and in the news to, uh, you know, is Israel committing war crimes, accusations of genocide, are they being too firm? Let's not forget what happened because we certainly haven't forgotten that here. And that is something that, uh, you know, plays, is a reason for all of this. Not only are we trying to catch the perpetrators, we're also trying to release our hostages. And we're also trying to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that really um, is relevant as we try to talk about proportionality, um, which is not a count of bodies or anything like that. It's what is the military... Um, gain uh, when you weigh it against the possible harm to to civilians, and the military gain is massive. It's pr- it's protecting our civilians. It's protecting future massacres, which Hamas has promised that they would do. So I think it's very important to do that. And Netanyahu also stressed that we don't need America or any foreign uh, power to tell us to protect civilians. It's something that Israel does because uh, it's the way we fight. It's because we follow international law and we go well above and beyond that. So I think he made that point with Fox, with ABC, with NBC, as he does. Uh, these interviews in English are really his wheelhouse where you really see him, um, you know, something that he's done for decades and that he, he does very well. Um, and and I think he's comfortable doing that. That's why he gives these interviews in English much more than he does uh, to the local media, unfortunately. But uh, I think that that message does does get across. Another platform that was used yesterday to get across the the status of Israelis and, and the massacre, the range of the massacre, and our need, Israelis' need for the support of Americans, all kinds of Americans, was, of course, the Super Bowl, which you watched. Uh, I My last Super Bowl was, we, we reckoned, was 1986. Is that right? That's what That's we right. figured out. Refrigerator <laughs> Perry. <laughs> That's right. So... I understand that one of your heroes, Robert Kraft, sponsored, or at least his foundation sponsored, a Super Bowl ad featuring Clarence B. Jones, the former lawyer and advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., who drafted the famous I Have a Dream speech. Did you catch that ad, Laser? I caught that ad. That was early in the game. Maybe it was even in the first quarter. Uh, Very powerful, well done. And you can just imagine the millions of eyes on that. Um, very important. There was a second ad which we saw released um, on the internet beforehand, which you know involved um, a neighbor, seemed not to be Jewish, painting over uh, anti-Semitic graffiti on a home. I did not see that one. That might have aired, and I missed it. And then there were the ads that um, Israel paid for, but I think they were only available on certain streaming platforms, so uh, so I didn't come across them. Um, but I think it's recognizing the the stage and, and when things are done during the Super Bowl, it takes a different uh, weight. And the fact that, you know, that there's this investment in getting that message out, it's important. Good for Bob Kraft. It's something he's done for a long time. He's long been a supporter of Israel um, and and certainly fighting against anti-Semitism. So, um vote to him. Happy to see it. Happy to see that he's willing to invest in this important message. Even though the Patriots didn't play, how was the game, Laser? <laughs> Yep, no Patriots. Won't be for a long time, I think. No Tom Brady, he's done. Uh, It was actually a good game. The game started slowly, not much offense in the first half, but it picked up by the end. The NFL script writers wrote up a good one, and we had the second overtime Super Bowl. Ended after 5 a.m. here, so I got a couple of hours of sleep, but here we are back in the office 
telling the news to the world. Well, I definitely appreciate it. Thanks, Lazar. Thank you. Thanks for joining The Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>